Welcome to SB&M is Here, the State Bar of New Mexico's official podcast. In this series, we'll discuss topics such as professional development, tools of the legal trade, and mental and professional well-being. Connecting the legal community across New Mexico, SB&M is here. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 2021 season of the SB&M is Here podcast. I am Morgan Pettit, Member Services Manager and the current producer slash developer of the podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. If you're a returning listener, we are glad you're tuning in. I will keep this episode intro short as I know y'all are tuning in to hear from our Chief Justice, but I do want to briefly say that the focus of the 2021 podcast season is going to be on the judiciary. We'll of course still cover some other topics. We've got uh, a cannabis episode and a diversity episode waiting in the wings. But the overwhelming response from the first season was to hear from the judiciary, (laughs) especially given everything the world threw at us in 2020. And here's to hoping 2021 is just a little bit better. Uh, Fingers are super crossed. So if you are a judge, justice, or law clerk, and you think uh, someone from your chambers would like to reach out to the SB&M legal community through the podcast, please contact member services. That's me. Or if you are a member at large and want to hear specifically from someone from your judicial leadership, uh, please let me know too. This podcast is for you all, and we want to know how we can best serve you through this new platform. Without further ado, here's Allison Block Chavez, the 2020 YLD Past Chair, and Chief Justice Michael V. Hill of the New Mexico Supreme Court. Welcome to the SBNM is Here podcast. I'm Allison Block Chavez, the chair of the Young Lawyers Division. Today, Chief Justice Michael V. Hill of the New Mexico Supreme Court is joining me to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on our state courts, what the Supreme Court has planned for 2021, and we'll learn a little bit about the Chief Justice. Welcome, Chief Justice V. Hill. Nice to be here, Allison. Good to see you. So I'm going to do a quick introduction of the Chief Justice, and then we'll start talking about what's happening at the New Mexico Supreme Court. Chief Justice Michael V. Hill was elected to the New Mexico Supreme Court in 2018 and was selected by his fellow justices as the Chief Justice beginning July 15, 2020. Prior to his election to the High Court, Justice V. Hill served as a judge on the New Mexico Court of Appeals for 15 years after practicing law for over 27 years. He was appointed to the Court of Appeals in 2003 by Governor Bill Richardson and was sworn into office on the stage in Sweeney Gymnasium, excuse me, the same stage where he received his high school diploma. He served as the court's chief judge for a two-year term and sat on over 3,000 panels and wrote over 1,000 opinions. Justice V. Hill has served on the New Mexico Sentencing Commission, the New Mexico Chief Judges Council, the New Mexico Courts Budget Committee, and the Council of Chief Judges of the State Courts of Appeal. Justice V. Hill received the Native Hispanic Hero Award from the New Mexico House of Representatives in 2012 and has been an elected member of the American Law Institute since 2009. His greatest joy as a judge has been participating in Constitution Day for fifth graders, which I think we did together, right, Justice? That's right. Uh, We had a whole room full of kids sitting on the floor and they were excited uh, to see a judge and and a lawyer come to talk to them about the Constitution. It was a lot of fun. It was fun. And also with the Court of Appeals, you sat on appeal panels in real cases before high school students throughout New Mexico. Justice Field began his legal career in 1976 as one of the first staff attorneys in the Court of Appeals pre-hearing division. And after that, he went into private practice where he tried almost every kind of case, administrative, civil, criminal, in every judicial district of the state of New Mexico in both state and federal courts. He's a graduate of Santa Fe High School and a graduate of College of Santa Fe. He received his legal education at Georgetown University, where he also served as the editor on the Georgetown Law Journal. So he's had a long distinguished career and now he's chief judge of New Mexico's High Court. So welcome Justice B. Hill. Again, thank you, it's nice to be here. (laughs) 
So I think to start, um, you know, this year has been pretty tough with COVID among, among other large issues facing New Mexico and the country. Um, I think State Bar members are interested in how COVID-19 has impacted the courts. There have been obviously obvious impacts like hearings via Google Meets or moratoriums on certain types of cases. Um, from the Supreme Court's perspective, what have been the biggest impacts or changes? Thank you, Allison. First of all, let me begin by saying this. No self-governing democracy can survive without a fully functioning justice system. Um, the judiciary provides essential services to the public, serving as the guardian of the Constitution and statutes and the arbiter of disputes. Without the judiciary, the public would not be able to exercise constitutional rights, be protected from domestic violence or child abuse, resolve marital, child custody, or probate disputes, or end discrimination and harassment, to name a few. Moreover, the, the state, county, and local governments would not be able to prosecute and enforce laws and regulations vital to the public safety. So, to make my point, try to imagine our state of New Mexico operating with no court system in place. So the uh, uh, response of the New Mexico Supreme Court to the COVID situation was immediate and far reaching. Immediately after the governor uh, issued her proclamation um, declaring a public health emergency in New Mexico, the Supreme Court issued its own administrative orders to ensure that the courts remained open while also promoting public health and safety and following public guidance. Some of the things we did, we immediately suspended civil and criminal jury trials. We limited gatherings of individuals in courthouses to no more than 25 people. We suspended peremptory excusals. We authorized, in fact, encouraged as the default, remote appearances and telework. We implemented e-filing measures. We restricted out-of-state travel for judicial officers and employees. We stayed writs of restitution for tenants and eviction proceedings. We stayed in-person visits between children in custody and, C, uh, and CYFD families. We required everyone in the courthouse to wear masks or face coverings and go through a two-part screening process. In addition to all of that, the court immediately created what we call the emergency response team, or call it for shorthand, we call it ERT. This consisted of, uh, consists, because it still exists, Supreme Court justices and staff and HR, communications and legal experts from the AOC. Some of the things the ERT did was to approve limited or reduced operation plans for all 13 judicial districts and the Metropolitan Court, 81 municipal courts, and 33 probate courts. The re ERT requirements for each plan include masks, physical distancing, how and where sidebar and confidential conversations occur, how exhibits are handled, remote proceedings as, as, as the default, cleaning and sanitizing protocols, and more. The ERT also consulted with NMDOH and HSD to develop and implement policies necessary to ensure the safety of judicial facilities. We also provided necessary facilities to courts and judicial facilities such as masks, juror supplies, signage, and sanitizers. And this was statewide, almost overnight. We had distribution points uh, doing these things. So um, the 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 response was immediate, it was quick, and it was pervasive. Now, we have over 1,900 employees working for the judiciary statewide. As of September 30th, 2020, our efforts, resolved, our efforts prevented court-wide spread of COVID-19 and resulted in a 1.2% of positive case rate and 98% return to work rate and no deaths resulting from COVID in the courthouses. So we're very proud of that. Of course, uh, as th those numbers increased with the recent upsurge, and um, as of November the 12th, the positive rate judiciary-wide is 4%. 
and the positivity rate judiciary-wide is five, 5%. Five so those are the, some of the things we did immediately and uh, the impact it had not only on court employees and judges, but also on the public and, and the, the lawyers uh, putting their cases through the courts. So implementing those emergency measures, were there resources that had to be shifted or, uh, you know, an increased need of resources in the different judicial districts? We were, well, of course, each, each courthouse is different. You know, each, each, it's the way they're configured and, and, and some are e more e easily able to do certain things than others. Uh, plexiglass uh, all of a sudden became very, very mm -hmm. uh, rare and hard to find. And, uh, but basically it was uh, implementing, uh, number one, if it's possible, work from home. Stay out of the courthouse if you can. Um, some employees can't do that. I mean, their work, they have to be there. Um, number two was wear masks. We required masks and we were very diligent um, and remain diligent that they have to be uh, EOH approved masks. It's not just something that you just buy somewhere or the latest fad. Uh, some of these plastic masks you see out there uh, were not deemed safe because the, um, the air could come in underneath the mask that's hanging down or, or in from the side. So we had to have a, approved masks. A dis social distancing, which is six feet for no more than three minutes um, is, is the way it was defined. And many of the things that we did in the courthouses were more strict than uh, the public health measures approved by the governor. So uh, for example, the, the 25 uh, person limit was, I think the governor at the time had 50, if I remember right, and we reduced it to 25. So. Well, that's great. It sounds like, like you mentioned with the numbers that you're keeping employees and, and public safe. So that's great that it was implemented and worked out good. So you did mention some of the moratoriums, you know, there's currently federal and state moratoriums on evictions and, and foreclosures. And when those are lifted, there likely will be a flood of cases in our courts and more judgments against individuals for, for damages and likely an increase in bankruptcy. Is the, are the courts prepared for this influx of cases? And if so, what, what are, what's the Supreme Court doing to prepare? Okay. Uh, number one, we're asking for money to fund uh, settlement facilitation programs in, in uh, mortgage foreclosure cases, which the funding expired, I think in the 13th Judicial District. And we're trying to come up with funds from the, from the legislature to facilitate those kinds of programs in all the courts throughout the state. Um, so we're, we're asking the, the, the legislature to help us on that. The other thing we've done is you may have heard about the court's online dispute resolution program. Uh, when we first started that program, it was limited to uh, uh, money due cases. And um, We've expanded that now to landlord-tenant cases, um, uh, and adding many, many features to the existing program. And let me, uh, just a couple of, of the things that, that, that are available. Um, when a defendant is served in any of these cases, the case automatically goes to online dispute resolution. Um, it was previously triggered by a, a, an answer being filed. Now, when, when the first, when the, when the file shows that the defendant has been served, it automatically goes to online dispute resolution. Anybody can participate on that using a smartphone or a tablet. You don't have to have a computer. And, and, and it seems like everybody these days has uh, smartphones of, of one kind or another. Also, um, plaintiffs, regardless of whether they have an attorney, they're required to participate by court order in the program. Um, previously, participation was voluntary. So plaintiffs are gonna have to participate. Um, as soon as the defendant is served, uh, it goes to online dispute resolution. And another uh, enhanced uh, thing we have on that is defendants can make an offer. Anybody can start the negotiating process the offer process. Um, and, and there's enhanced uh, capabilities that I'm not, I'm not a technocrat, as you know, about how they can uh, talk 
to each other, text each other, email each other. Um, and those, those features are enhanced. Judge Jane Levy from the second judicial district is the one that headed up that pro program and she's, she's done a, a great job for us. Um, so this is gonna offer a speedier resolution of these cases, both debt cases and landlord tenant cases. Um, and it's gonna offer you know, people uh, with an ability to, to settle these cases quicker and cheaper um, if they wish. We do know that once a, a case goes, whether it's landlord tenant or any other case, once it goes to a settlement facilitation, uh, especially these landlord tenant cases, they settle. So it's really uh, not only having judicial resources in place, but these uh, programs, uh, in-person settlement facilitation, as well as online dispute resolution, um, in place to help with that backlog. We know there's gonna be a backlog. There's nothing we can do to avoid that. Great. And what about um, when they do go to trial, some of these cases, maybe not necessarily landlord tenant or evictions, but other civil trials or maybe even criminal jury trials. What are, how are the court, how's the court addressing um, the jury trials and making sure that everyone stays safe? Okay. Well, as I said, each each judicial district has submitted to the uh, emergency response team a plan. Each each district has a separate plan, um, but basically these these require uh, a screening at the door. They require masks. They require social distancing. They require uh, as much as possible uh, conducting the trial by video. Um, or as much as the parties wish by video. And uh, uh, the regular safe practices. Now, some places have uh, facilities available. I understand the second judicial district, for example, may be looking at or has already looked at uh, using the Albuquerque Convention Center for a voir dire jury selection because uh, they have those large rooms there where people can be separated um, and maybe even do the trials there. Other places, they may be limited to using um, local uh, uh, theaters uh, from a local community college or something of that sort. Uh, but they, you know, they've they've shown the courts have shown that they can uh, proceed, you know, and conduct these trials. Let me give you a couple of more figures since I have them all written down. Between March and October, there were uh, forty-seven civil district court jury trials and 221 district court criminal trials. There were 6,419 civil bench trials during that same time frame and 1,559 bench trials in criminal cases. There were also, uh, and the magistrate courts also had jury trials and bench trials. Um, the, the total district and magistrate court trials between March and October of this year, there was 13,122. And uh, between uh, uh, March and August, our courts conducted over 238,000 hearings. Most of them well, were remotely. So the courts have been working, they've been operating. Uh, our goal when this whole thing started um, was keep the courts open, keep them safe, and keep them operating and keep them serving uh, the public. I think in, in my experience on the attorney side, it takes a lot more kind of planning, especially for evidence, making sure you have all of your exhibits together and ensuring you have enough time to provide them to the judge and provide them to the opposing party. So, it, and I imagine in a trial, those attorneys really have to plan on, on how to, how they're going to do the testimony and present those exhibits. So, so, so I think it just um, takes a lot more re planning. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, the other thing that's important to remember in all of this is that the lawyers and their professionalism towards each other plays a great role in the success or failure of doing these trials in these COVID times. Um, I spoke to, um, a judge had recently conducted a civil jury trial here in, in the second judicial district, and it went very well. I mean, uh, it was as smooth as could be. 
And what she said was that the professionalism of the lawyers and cooperating with each other on things that, that didn't make any difference to the case played a huge role in that. So, you know, lawyers, lawyers have a huge role in, in their pretrial orders that they put together um, and their stipulations. Um, it really, really means a lot. And, um, um, you know, um, I've encouraged, <laughs> I've encouraged lawyers to uh, stipulate to bench trials because, uh, you know, as a lawyer, I knew my judges better than I was ever going to know strangers coming in from the community, uh, a, a panel, jury, prospective jury panel of, you know, 80 people. I always knew my judges better than those 80 strangers. So I knew uh, what I could do to prepare to try a case, a bench trial before a judge. Um, secondly, you know, the, um, well, you can stipulate or make an agreement that you can set a low a, a floor to any verdict or a ceiling to any verdict. That way, both sides have uh, some comfort that the cases uh, that the judge would be, uh, if, if they agreed that if it's lower than that, it goes to the to the floor. If it's higher, it goes to the ceiling. Uh, both sides have comfort in, in, in getting their case tried, but in having the comfort that it's not going to be either lower or higher than an amount that they agree upon. And they may have, you know, disagreements on what the case is worth, but at least they may have an agreement as to what the range is. So, uh, uh, and I think there's, we're going to be working on some other things uh, down the road to encourage parties to uh, stipulate to bench trials where it's, where, where, when they can. So I think thinking about that, you know, everyone's wondering when things will be back to normal. So I'm wondering when the courts will be back to normal, if if it's even going to return to normal. And then what what from these new procedures or programs the, the courts implement and what's going to stay around when we do get back to quote unquote normal? I think we're going to have a new normal is what I think. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Many of the things we've learned, many of the things we've done uh, that we've implemented have gone a long way to, to, uh, to improving uh, things and uh, to uh, uh, expedite and make things more efficient. You know, these remote platforms that we now have, that we now use like we're using today, um, Zoom and Google Meets and so forth, I think that's here to stay for many, many things. I think conducting short hearings is here to stay for many, many things. I think judges and, and parties and lawyers are seeing efficiencies in doing uh, these hearings and, uh, by, by video. Um, and they can do them back to back to back to back to back and, uh, and, and schedule them ahead of time. Um, we have uh, video links. We have enhanced video links between the courts and the detention centers now. We're conducting arraignments and, and, and all kinds of uh, things that, that need to occur between uh, people that are arrested and their attorneys and the judicial system. These enhanced systems are going to stay and I'm hoping they improve and we can make bring efficiencies there um, and uh, save money on, for example, transportation costs and things of that sort. Um, so I think there is a new normal. I don't know where it's going to shake out. I don't know where it's going to end up. But I think many of these things that uh, we're we're using now, we're seeing we can uh, we're seeing the good part of them, and uh, there's there's always a silver lining to some of these things that 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 are around. So I'm I'm looking forward to our new normal. I I agree. As as an attorney, for example, I had a hearing in Alamogordo, and so I didn't have to drive from Albuquerque to Alamogordo and incur attorney's fees. I could just log into the Google Meet. So it's efficient for me. It's more cost effective for, for clients. So I, I, do, I do appreciate being able to have a lot of these online hearings, especially since we're in a large state, large geographical state. So Thinking of that, um, let's start talking about what the court's doing in, in 2021. So in addition to COVID this year, we were also impacted by the death of George Floyd and confronted with the realization that many of our governmental systems, including the judicial system, 
are often biased to many individuals. Can you tell us about how the Supreme Court is addressing bias and systematic racism in our judicial system? Well, you know, I, the, the, the judiciary and the state bar have been, in New Mexico anyway, have for a long time been concerned with and have addressed and have studied um, discrimination in the courtroom and in the practice of law. The state bar just committed, uh, finalized re writing two reports uh, this past year on those on those very topics. And some of the findings are very, very uh, fascinating, very interesting. Um, it is a long report, but they, they are kind of lengthy, but uh, but that that shows how, how thoroughly the, the issues were studied. For its part, the Supreme Court created the Equity and Justice Commission this past year to deal with uh, those kinds of issues that you've discussed and others. Uh, Justice uh, Bacon is heading up that commission. And it's amazing when we announced it, the creation of the commission, um, how many people were volunteering, wanting to uh, become a member of the commission to help in addressing these issues, not only relating to employment in the judiciary, but uh, the lawyers uh, themselves and uh, the judges. You know, um, I don't think we have a single uh, Native American state district court judge in the state of New Mexico. And uh, if we do, they're certainly way underrepresented. Um, and this is one of the things, one of the areas that the commission is going to be addressing. I don't want to talk too much because I don't want to step on Justice Bacon's toes <laughs> on that regard, you know. And um, um, so, also equal access to justice is is a big priority of of the New Mexico Supreme Court. It has been for many many years, and uh, that's another area that uh, the court has been involved in and will remain involved in for the future. And uh, there's I just gave a uh, uh, an address to uh, one of the committee the the uh, Appropriations Committee, and uh, I've made a plug for equal access to justice um, to the committee while I was talking about the judicial, <laughs> the judiciary. So we have, there is an interconnection between them, and um, I think the, the legislature appreciated that. I think for all of these Supreme Court committees and commissions, it's always looking for members of the state bar and of the public to participate. And if anyone's interested, there's always postings in the bar bulletin or on the state bar's website um, of how to apply if there's an opening on these boards. So you, you mentioned a little bit earlier too about the upcoming legislative session and requesting some money from the legislature. Can you tell us what the what the Supreme Court's requesting in its budget and other initiatives the court will be pursuing at the legislature? Yes, I'm happy to do that. Let me let me begin by saying a lot of people don't know how the the budget process works for the judiciary. Uh, many years ago, I mean, and in, in, in when I became a lawyer, each district came before the legislature for its own budget, so that the the big uh, districts were able to get a lot of money and the, the small districts weren't able to get anything. And uh, and the more political clout uh, a, a judge or a district had, the greater its budget uh, needs were satisfied. So what the court did, um, I think it was Judge Frankini, I may not be right on that, but the court uh, started, initiated a unified budget concept. What the court did was create a budget committee the budget committee um, is composed of uh, judges and, and uh, uh, staff from all over the state, chaired by uh, a, a judge. And uh, each judicial district has to come before this budget committee with its individual budget request. And it has to defend it. And you're not going to pull the wool over anybody's eyes in this process because everybody knows what the needs are. Everybody's professional. Everybody knows what the needs of the courts are. The Budget Committee actually holds uh, hearings, uh, and they've started televising those hearings, um, and they, they vet every single request, they vet every single penny that's requested, and they come up with a total figure, consistent with uh, budget uh, priorities set by the court. That approved, the, the, 
The budget approved by the budget committee then goes before the chief judges council. The chief judges council is composed of every chief judge from all 13 judicial districts, the Metro court and uh, uh, the CJC. They vet that budget and they, they will make cuts or make suggestions. Finally, that goes to the Supreme Court, which once again, um, that's everything and makes a final decision. And it comes up with a final number, total number for the unified budget, which is then broken down into the different individual judicial districts. So that being the case, what we did, uh, you may remember um, this past June, I think it was, the, uh, the legislature had a special session and at that time, the court was cut 3.73%. Everybody was being cut 5%. The judiciary was cut 3.73%. Our, our goal, number one goal, this uh, upcoming legislative session is to restore that 3.73% budget cut, which means that the if we get that, the judiciary will basically be flat for the fiscal year uh, 22 compared to the prior fiscal year. Um, uh, by the way, you know, the judiciary has always been a good buy. Of the total uh, budget for the entire state of New Mexico, the, the judiciary, the judiciary share is about 2.7%, 2.77%. So, it's been a good buy. It's hovered right around that, that figure for many, many years. Uh, this year, it's going to be 2.77 as, as what we predict. So um, the, uh, the priorities, number one is to, to maintain adequate funding to continue operations in this co period of COVID. And we're not asking for a raise. We're asking to restore the, the cut that was given to us in the special session and keep us flat to what we were before. Another thing uh, that happened in the special session, the, 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 the legislature had approved five new judgeships um, in, the, in the prior session. Um, they approved two in the second district, one in the third, and one in the first, and one in the twelfth. The total, and these are recurring funds that have to be used, I mean, obtained every year, every year, every year to pay for these judgeships. That was $1.2 million. What happened in the special session was that the, the legislature cut that $1.2 million out of the budget as recurring funds and gave a one-time allocation of 500,000 to the administrative office of the courts to just get us through this next session here. So um, our number one priority is to fully fund on a recurring basis these five judgeships. Bearing in mind in New Mexico, when, when the legislature approves a judgeship, the district has no, um, they have no alternative. They must pay these judges. And if there's not enough money, guess who suffers? It's the, the, the line employees, the clerks, because that's the only place you, you have a place to make up money. Um, so that's our number one priority. Number two is to invest in, in pretrial services, which we know enhances public safety and we know um, saves money. Um, we're, we're seeking to expand to uh, Grant County, Grants County, Hidalgo, and Luna counties, as well as the third judicial district to, to have a pretrial services program. You know, uh, uh, I, I, these programs are so good. Um, what we've learned um, in Bernalillo County, I'm sorry, what we've learned in Bernalillo County, according to the UNM Institute for Public Research, um, they conducted a public safety assessment review. And two of the findings that they made are that more than four out of five defendants in Bernalillo County were not arrested for a crime while on pretrial release. So that was a you know, significant substantial savings to Bernalillo County. 
And, and contrary to uh, some of the news that you may hear or read, 96% were not accused of a violent crime while released. So there, there's a 4% that uh, was, a, was an anomaly, and there's always going to be an anomaly, but that was a very small anomaly um, in terms of uh, public safety. Justice, I don't practice criminal law. So when you say pretrial services, that's where they get arraigned and then they're released, but they can yes. have to check in with, say, a, a parole officer or something yes. like that, and right? That's under the uh, constitutional amendment for, re for pretrial release that they're okay. voters. Uh, we're also asking for money to represent parties in uh, abuse and neglect cases for these, these people that can't afford an attorney. We're asking for $100,000 to continue and expand the online dispute resolution program, which I previously described. And uh, we're asking for additional funds for certain specific initiatives to enhance public safety and remote court access uh, to parties and, and uh, detention facilities. So those are the, the uh, big uh, initiatives that the court has. That's great. So, you know, a lot of people have, are unsure how the legislators the legislature is going to function. I think a lot of it might be remote or, or um, you know, video. So hopefully the court will be able to to achieve their their goals and priorities because I know that'll really affect affect our state positively and our judiciary positively. Well, you, you know, this uh, unified judiciary unified budget uh, system that I described. It's been in place many years now, and it has gained tremendous uh, believability and credibility uh, by the legislature. So even though each district, each district goes in to, to seek its own funds, it's within the context of the unified budget, and uh, it's gained a great popularity and, and great uh, uh, acceptance by the judiciary. We, um, we're expecting, I'm expecting, we'll have to do a lot of our presentations remotely. We're getting used to it and they're getting used to it. Mm -hmm. um, this would be the year for us to deliver a state of the judiciary address to the to a joint session of the legislature. Um, that's not gonna happen this year, uh, owing to COVID. So uh, we'll, we'll hopefully get some other things in place that, that can take its place. Uh, one of the things we we're working on as we speak is a Judiciary 101 uh, video, which is a video we're gonna put together uh, explaining to these legislators, many of whom have no idea um, exactly how the judiciary operates, how a case proceeds through, through court, how the judicial system is divided into 13 judicial districts, how there's a chief judge in every judicial district, how we consolidated the magistrate courts in each district to the district courts um, and explain in, in a very fundamental way how the courts operate so that when they're looking at the budget, um, they'll have a basic understanding and hopefully it'll it'll help. That sounds like a great project and a good way to demonstrate the work that the judiciary is doing. Yes. Unfortunately, it's gonna be by video instead of in person, but that's okay. We do what right. we have. Right. Good. Any other initiatives you want to mention that the court's working on this coming year? Sure. Um, we, um, let me look here. We have um, some of the things that we have in place that you may not be aware of. We have a central citation entry, which, which, uh, Traffic citations are entered into the system by a centralized team that can work from any place in the state. They don't have to be in a courthouse or in a courtroom. They can be at home. Um, but uh, uh, the operations center that, from which this place operates is in Las Cruces, for example. In that same centralized location, there's a customer service call center. Um, there's a free central call center for callers to get basic information in English and in Spanish about court services, cases and compliance with citations, summons and warrants. Basically any questions they have, they'll try and answer them for, for the public. Um, we have expanded online payments. Uh, we're putting in place a system where uh, you can go to court 
And if you have a, uh, a fine or a fee, you can pay it there with your credit card um, on site without having to go and, and take it home and then send a check and it gets lost and this and take care of your business right there. Uh, we have e-filing for criminal cases, um, which we've expanded from civil cases. Um, it's, we've also implemented it in Metro Court in Albuquerque, e-filing. Um, language access services, what we're, uh, we're introducing is Clara, which is a multilingual interactive hands-free avatar that's in the lobby of the courthouse that uh, you can go ask questions in, in different languages and uh, um, get your answer to your question. Of course, the, the neat thing about it is it avoids person-to-person -person contact and, and promotes uh, safety. We're video streaming district and magistrate court proceedings, which enhances uh, public uh, access. A lot of people um, complain that the, it's reducing, you know, what we're doing is reducing public access. What we're finding is it increases. You know, I sat on a, uh, for example, a um, judicial nominating commission. And I can't tell you how many people were watching and listening in remotely, which you've never had those kinds of numbers of people, you know, hundreds attending in person a uh, uh, judicial nominating commission, but there they were attending remotely. And it, it, it affected, it enhanced. I'm wondering, is the Supreme Court gonna continue its live stream of oral arguments? We are working on that. Uh, we. Uh, uh, we're, we're, we're very we're very excited about wanting to continue doing that. Even when we go live, is to, to continue to to record them and and put them on a video uh, platform so the the public can have access. Um, I've already gone over the online dispute resolution. We're looking at um, rural attorney recruitment. We're trying to implement a. We're working on a program where lawyers are, are encouraged to go to work in rural communities through various incentives uh, provided by, uh, by, for example, maybe loan forgiveness, um, rent assistance from the local governments and so forth. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful program that's in the process and uh, we're, we're working on it. Hopefully we can get it off the ground. We're working on enhancing video uh, instruction instruction videos of, for example, pro se parties that may be going through a divorce. Um, it cho shows them how to do that, um, how to, what the process is like. We have what we call a court navigator project, which um, it's not to take you from a room to room, but it's to help parties. If you come in, uh, may I help you? Yes, uh, um, I'm looking, I want to get a TRO. Um, the court navigator would show them where the forms are, how to access the forms, how to fill them out, where to turn them in, and things of that sort. That can also be done remotely by video. Um, once again, enhancing public safety. Um, another project we're working on is online dispute resolution of site, traffic citation cases that uh, where you don't have face the possibility of jail, where maybe you can have, say, a single per, uh, attorney negotiating for all the police officers settlement of say a speeding ticket or something like that to save uh, everyone time. Those are some of the things that are in, in process and uh, we're looking forward to getting those off the ground and moving in 2021. I want as quickly as we can to get 2020 behind us. <laughs> I think everybody does. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, move forward. I'm looking forward to a, a, a bright future for for the court, for the judiciary uh, in New Mexico. Well, that's a great overview. And I think a lot of times people don't realize that Supreme, the Supreme Court is handling a lot of that administrative work. I think sometimes people think it's just oral argument and making law, but there's a lot that you guys do as the third branch of the government to, to make sure that you're getting these services to, to our community. Well, well, thank you. Yeah, there is a <laughs> It's amazing how much administrative work. You mentioned earlier committee work. We get uh, a binder, I don't know, inches thick, many inches thick, when it get, comes time to appoint members of these committees, uh, owing to vacancies and so forth. And in that book is all the applications, um, the, a, a summary, um, uh, resumes, um, 
what uh, what these people have if they've served before, and each justice goes through that book, his or her book, and votes on who they want to be um, on these committees. And uh, if it's not unanimous, it's taken up in Wednesday conference, and that's where these uh, that's one area where you know these Wednesday conferences can go all day sometimes. But uh, anyway, that's just a, a, an example of the things that the court does. So I want to maybe, you know, as chair of the Young Lawyers Division, I like to sometimes ask distinguished attorneys or judges or justices in your case a little bit about their their path to where they are now and kind of their career over time. So, you know, I uh, one of my I'm wondering what advice you would give to a young Michael V. Hill in 1976 when he was setting out on his legal career. The number one, the number one advice I would give, and that I've gave, given to every law clerk I've I've had over the years, um, is keep your word. Um, your word is your bond, and you'd be amazed. Um, once you have a reputation in a courthouse, or or you know we're a very small bar, um, that reputation it's almost it's in cement. And if it's bad, it's very, very difficult to change. So from the get-go, make your word your honor, your bond. And uh, you know, in Metro Court, these young lawyers, um, they work together day in and day out in hundreds and hundreds of cases. And uh, it, they, they operate on their word to each other. And if uh, you go back on your word, that, that follows you not only there, but everywhere else that you go. And um, you know, we now have emails, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails to uh, cover yourself, so to speak. And uh, with certain lawyers, the reputation is that you know if the, if a lawyer says that, some lawyers say something, that's that's the final word. And if that's their offer on a settlement or if that's their offer on a plea, they're not going to go back on it. So, um, or an extension of time or, you know, a discussion that position issue that you're working on. Um, that's the number one advice I would give. Make your word your bond. That's and, great and, advice. And the other part of that uh, is hard work. You know, it, you're not gonna be able to cut corners. It's all hard work. This is a very difficult profession and um, uh, roll up your sleeves and put a smile on your face and go to work. It is, it is a lot of hard work. And I know um, sometimes having having a mentor that you could talk to or ask questions about is important. And for me, you, you've been one of my mentors. You're my first boss as a lawyer and I've appreciated all your mentorship to me. So I know you've had a mentor and he was your law partner at, at one point in time. I'm wondering if you could tell us about your, the impact mentors have had on you and um, tell us a bit about who your mentor was. Okay, uh, my mentor was uh, Billy Marchiando. Um, he's now deceased. He was a member of the first graduating class, UNM Law School class. Um, he um, was just a, a, an amazing human being, an amazing lawyer. And um, what he taught me as far as, as the work goes is you read every single word of a deposition. You prepare as much as you have to to take a deposition. You you do everything you need to do to prepare for cross-examination. You cut no corners. You thoroughly research the law. You make valid arguments. And you, you also move to uh, expand the law uh, where it's appropriate. Um, not frivolously, but uh, based on logic and an extension of the law. He... Um, the good thing about him was that he was such a great trial lawyer in his in his heyday when he had a trial people would come in lawyers would come in from all over the city to watch him try cases and uh, to get tips on on how to how to conduct a trial and um, he he told me once a story that um, in his day uh, lawyers were appointed in federal court to, to represent indigent uh, defendants 
And it didn't matter what your practice was, what your specialty was. When you, if you did tax law, you came in and you were called to defend somebody robbing a bank or, or something like that. And um, needless to say, most of these cases, they'd had arraignment day and the judge would be sitting at the bench and uh, they'd call the case and how do you plead? Uh, guilty, how do you plead? Guilty, how do you plead? Guilty, how do you plead? Not guilty, what? <laughs> and uh, that's how, uh, that, the, what, the not guilty was uh, Mr. Marchiano as a young lawyer, having visited his client at the jail, gotten the facts, uh, come up with a defense. And, and that's how he started out uh, getting his reputation was trying these cases and not only trying them, but uh, doing to, owing to his hard work, winning them. And uh, that's how that's how we started out uh, representing his client all the way within the bounds of ethics and the law. And at the same, like I said before, keeping his word. Um, I, there was a story once uh, a lawyer shared with me that he, they settled a case for a certain dollar amount. The check came in and the lawyer didn't look at it. He just sent it to Mr. Marchiando's office. Marchiando called him and said, uh, this check is too much. <laughs> this is more than what we agreed to settle for. And uh, the lawyer had a, a very difficult time getting the insurance company to issue a new check for a lower amount. But that's that's what they did. So. I could go on and on and on, but uh, anyway, that that's it's it's with a smile on my face and um, that I share those with you. Well, and I know you apply those same principles to to your work because I've seen you. I've worked in your chambers, and you work hard, and your your word is your bond. And I I appreciate that you're now on the Supreme Court and leading our our judiciary into the future. So. Thank you, Chief, for, for spending some time today doing this podcast. It was good to hear about what the court's been up to and what we can anticipate in, in the new year. Do you have any final thoughts or words for the state bar members? We're, uh, we're waiting to find out who the governor is going to appoint as our newest member. You know, a lot of people may, may not realize this, but, you know, I've been on the Supreme Court two years and I'm now Chief Justice. Uh, Justice Bacon and Justice Thompson were appointed shortly after I came on. They've only been there uh, uh, right around two years. That's three of us. Justice Nakamura just retired. So four of the five justices are going to be have been on the court less than three years um, coming up, you know, this next year in 2021. Uh, Senior Justice Barbara V. Hill, of course, has been there longer than that. But it's a young court. And, uh, you know, we're uh, we're learning how to work with each other, how to mesh with each other. And, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're just waiting to see who our new colleague is going to be. Um, and I'm looking forward to working with him or her. Yeah, it's an exciting time for the judiciary. And I think all the, the new, somewhat new justices have great ideas of, of improving the judiciary for our state. So I'm excited too. Thank you, Allison, and it's nice to see you again. <laughs> nice to see you too, Chief. So, so that'll do it for today's podcast. Be sure to check the State Bar's website for our other SPNM is here episodes. And thanks again, Chief, and we'll hopefully see you soon. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>